History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Pete Goddard and I'm here in the HHE studio as ever with the tequila to my salt and lemon. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. Hello, Peter. I gave you the tequila this time around. Yeah, I love that. I thought you were the big value item. I'm not the bitter fruit. That's right, because you're bringing the goods this week, Ryan. Yeah. Uh, last time, the Dursleater gave us sleep in Mexico during the Middle Ages. It sure did. So I want to know, is this going to be a dream of an episode or have you been caught napping? <laughs> I see what you've see done what there. I did there. Yeah, it's very good. Well, look, Peter, in this episode, we are going to be delving into the secrets of slumber in the Mesoamerican world. We're going to be uncovering the practices and beliefs of the Aztec, the Mayan, and other indigenous peoples. From the sleep mats of snooze to the stinky god of nightmares. From the drug-peddling priests of Tonictilan to the spook-infested underworld of Mictlan. We're going under the covers of the mystical world of sleep in the land of the Aztec eagle and the Mayan jaguar. Welcome to the land of dreams. Welcome to Mexico. Okay then, Ryan, throw back the duvet of knowledge and lay it on me. What have you got? Well, look, let me orient you, Pete. Officially called the Estados Unidos Mexicanos, or the United Mexican States, Mexico is at the bottom of North America, separated from the USA by a big, beautiful wall, which famously (laughs) was paid for by the Mexicans. Head south or west, and you're going to get wet because you're now in the Pacific Ocean. In the very bottom of the country, you're going to find borders with Guatemala and Belize, and if you fancy another swim, you can plop into the Caribbean or the Gulf of Mexico. All right. Sounds appealing already. Yeah. It's the 13th largest country in the world at approximately 2 million square kilometres. That's about 76,000 square miles, which makes Mexico three and a half times larger than a France. Wow. I had no idea it was so big. It is a voluminous space. And uh, within it, you will find a lot of people. And that's because Mexico is the 10th most populous country in the world. Mexico is comprised, like America, of states. There are 31 of them, and Mexico City is their capital city. Travel to northern Mexico, and you're going to want to take suntan lotion and a bottle of water with you because it is home to the Chihuahuan Desert, which is roughly 80% the size of France. Wow, that's a big old desert. It's a big old desert. Don't get lost there. Big water bottle. Yeah, indeed. In the south, take a raincoat and a camera with you because that's where you're going to find Selva Lacandona, a dense rainforest full of things that fly, run, creep, and crawl. Animals such as jaguars, tapirs, monkeys, toucans, parrots, snakes, and some of those brightly coloured little frogs which look cute but whose venom will kill you within a minute. Ah, those ones you can lick and get high. Don't do that. (laughs) You don't know which one you'll get. Yeah, okay, Frog licking off the agenda. (laughs) Frog roulette. (laughs) In fact, of all the world's natural biodiversity, 12% is in Mexico. Oh, wow. That's impressive. Makes it one of the world's 17th mega diverse countries. Wow. But Mexico isn't just sand, trees and animals, Pete. It is also seventh in the world with respect to the number of UNESCO World Heritage Sites, including ancient cities like Chichen Itza, which is dominated by one of the uh, new seven wonders of the world, a huge stone step pyramid 
pyramid known as the Temple of Kukulkan. Kukulkan? Kukulkan. Yeah, that's right. And fun fact, if you stand in front of the pyramid and clap, the sound travels up the slope into a cavity at the top and returns as an echo, which sounds like the native Quetzal bird. The Quetzal bird. Do you want to hear? I do. This is the sound of the bird. Okay, got that. So that's the sound of the bird. Yep, this is the sound of the clap. Ah. That's the echo coming back, having been distorted by whatever the cavity does at the top. Nice. I've Isn't never heard of a design? building that does impressions. Yeah, and there's a building right next to it, which when you do the same, it makes the sound of a snake. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's really cool. Anyway, all of this, Pete, might explain why Mexico is the sixth most visited country in the world. Spanish is the language, Catholicism the religion, and the national animal is the golden eagle. The flag has three vertical stripes of green, white, and red. And in the very centre of the flag is the national coat of arms. It's an eagle sitting on a cactus devouring a serpent. It's always struck me as one of those elaborate flags. As a British person, someone says, draw the flag, I can knock out a Union Jack pretty easily. Mm -hmm. But if someone said, draw the Mexican flag, my eagle drawing ability is really not up to it, I'm afraid. (laughs) Anything with an actual creature or something yeah, I'm, that is very I'm much doomed. trickier to do. <laughs> in 1853, a talented young poet called Francisco González Bocanegra was locked into his bedroom by his fiancée, who refused to let him out until he'd finished writing an entry for the National Anthem competition. Eventually he wrote it, so she let him out, and his anthem won, and the rest is history. And it sounds a little like this. Oh, upbeat. Oh, yeah. Marshall. I can only imagine the lyrics relate to freedom in some way, and uh, everyone thinks, yes, freedom of the country, but actually the guy was, I just want to be loud of this bedroom. Yeah, most of the lyrics are, I hate my girlfriend, <laughs> let me out. <laughs> oh, nice shift of tone. I love it. Yeah, this is good. Mexico facts! Fact me. Mexico City. It's only sinking. No. Yeah, for sure. The area where Mexico City is located today was originally a lake called Lago de Texcoco. And back in the day, the lake was drained and the city was built on top. But as time has passed and the city has continued to grow, the underground clay is compressing. And it's compressing at a rate of 50 centimetres, that's 20 inches, every year. Wow, that's huge You can almost watch that, can't you? You really can, yeah. And this isn't something that can be stopped either. So the city will just continue to keep sinking. And it's now at a stage where its status as the seventh highest city in the world is now being questioned. (laughs) (laughs) So it's literally going to slide down the table. Oh my lord. Yeah. Pete, what's the best thing about TV? Oh, definitely watching it cuddled up under a blanket with a cocoa. In colour, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Invented in 1940 by a 17-year-old called Guillermo González Camarena, his chromoscopic adapter meant that black and white TV cameras could start capturing colour images. And first used in Mexico City in 1944, it was later used by NASA in 1979 to transmit colour images from cameras sent to Jupiter. 17 years old. That leaves me with a sense of admiration and bitterness. (laughs) (laughs) What were you doing at 17, Pete? Mm, Very little that was picked up by NASA. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the Aztec drink of the gods tastes like semen and boogers. 
Oh. Today, the national drink of Mexico is tequila. It's an alcoholic drink made from the blue agave plant, uh, which is a spiky little shrubby cacti type thing, and it's grown around the city of tequila. Simple to make. You take the plant, you extract its juice, you distill it. But the origins of tequila come from another drink created just before our time period, sometime around 250 CE. Made as a ceremonial wine, the drink was called pulque, and it's made by fermenting rather than distilling the sap of the agave plant. Now, distilling creates a sort of clear liquid, whereas fermentation creates a white, frothy, gooey, and yeasty drink, which is most charitably described (laughs) as a love child between beer, yogurt, and juice, the taste of which is less charmingly described as a sensation somewhere between snot and semen. Beer, juice, and milk together at last. (laughs) I've lost count of the number of times I've had my pint and thought... Dash of milk could go under it. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it may not look nice or, or have a great <laughs> texture, but it is a low alcohol beverage, two to six percent, and Polke still drunk to this day. So it's a session drink, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great source of probiotics, uh, protein, various vitamins and minerals. It's seen as a fix for diabetes, intestinal problems, impotence, and sleep disorders. Oh, you must have been glad when you found that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, unfortunately, Pete, Polke has a very short shelf life. Oh, no. Which means that it's made daily and then discarded at the end of each day. Oh, that's a shame. So I wasn't able to get any imported for us to try. So no Aztec drink of the gods for you. Such a shame. I'm so sorry, Ryan. However, <laughs> <laughs> I do have some of its great-grandson here for us to try. A very lovely bottle of tequila. Another probably racist noises. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, there you go. You're gonna, wow, uh, this looks amazing. I'm, I'm talking this you. is a Cascabel yeah. made with blue agave tequila blanco. So this, this is, is a white tequila. This is a white tequila. <laughs> All right, so Pete, I'm sure you've had tequila before. Uh, you know that it comes with salt and some sort of citrus. We, we're not having either of those. We're just going to drink it as it comes. I would observe that I've never started a night with tequila. <laughs> <laughs> Right, well, look, while you're sipping on that, uh, let me move on, because that's not where the drinking stops, Pete. Hooray! (laughs) (laughs) I I would normally be down for that, but your first drink was some trepidation. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're okay. Because while Mexicans love tequila, they also love cerveza, beer. So, for the sake of tradition, Pete... Of course. I have uh, some imported cerveza here in the form of Pacifico Clara, a Pilsner-style beer brewed in the Pacific Ocean port of Mazatlan. So, should we try some of that? Let's try it! All right, here we go. Oh, my Lord, we've got beer and tequila. This is how a good night out goes. All right, here we go. Pacifico Clara. Cheers! Mm-mm-mm. Dang, that's tasty. Very nice. A little, and a good combo, I would have to say. Well, there we go. You see, you can't say I don't bring you anything, Pete. I will never say that. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. Oh, what's up with you? Oh, trouble with the neighbours. What, that Canadian family? They seem so nice. No, the ones on the other side. Well, what's going on there? I've been told they want to come into our garden. Well, who told you that? The guy who lives down the road. Well, the grumpy old Australian guy who lives in the mansion? Yeah, Mr Fox. He says they want a nicer garden, and so they're planning on taking ours. Really? Yeah. He says they're really jealous of the podcast, too. Really? Yeah. He says they want to take it for themselves. Well, why? Well... I, uh, probably because we can say whatever we like and, and they want that freedom. I'm telling you, they want to come over and take our jobs, Pete. 
I've got to protect us. So I'm going to build a great big beautiful fence to keep them out. That's crazy. No, what's crazy is I'm going to make them pay for it. Look, this is ridiculous. Is it though? I mean, I know they've got the money for it. Well, how do you know that? Well, from all the drugs they sell. Well, how do you even know they sell drugs? Well, that's where I buy ours. Ryan, this is ridiculous. You've got to stop listening to Mr. Fox. If you've got trouble with the neighbours, you should just get to know them, understand them as people, and just learn to live in harmony. Think of all the lovely things they've given us over the years. The food, the music, that piñata they gave you. Yeah, I did love that piñata. Diplomacy, communication, keeping an open mind. Isn't that better? Nah, I'm going to build a bigger fence. Ryan, you're an idiot. We've got a taste of Mexico, Pete, but let's start our journey into the past. 65 million years ago, right? We are really going to the beginning. Yeah, we are, me and you, we're standing in the area that will one day become Mexico. And we both look up into the sky and see directly above us, streaking through the atmosphere, a rock the size of New York City. It's travelling at 72,000 kilometres per hour, 45,000 miles per hour, roughly seven times faster than even the most modern fighter jets. And in the blink of an eye, exactly where we're standing, it hits the surface with 7,000 times the power of all the atomic weapons available today combined. And what are our chances of survival at this point? (laughs) (laughs) I will raise my glass to you and say goodbye. It's been a pleasure, Ryan. Yes, indeed. (laughs) So smoke and dust from the impact darkens the sky. Tsunamis cause devastation around the globe. And 75% of the planet's wildlife disappears in a day, wiping out the dinosaurs forever. Time slowly passes, the Earth recovers, until eventually we get to around 20,000 years ago. And where once there was devastation, we are now standing in a lush forest. And through the foliage comes... Early man! Early man! That's exactly right. And it's the usual story. He's living off the land, he's hunting, he's gathering, he's chiseling stone tools. But time goes by and he starts to grasp the foundations of agriculture. Villages with distinct hierarchies develop, societies which have chiefs at the top, workers at the bottom, civilization is booming. One of these civilizations, the most notable for the period, is the Olmec, an empire with a complex society that rules for about a thousand years from 1400 BCE. They're carving massive 10 feet, 3 meter tall stone sculptures of human heads, they're sacrificing humans to their gods, they develop a complex writing system, and what's more, the Olmec have such a strong influence over the area that their culture becomes absorbed by other societies. And when they mysteriously vanish around 400 BCE, the Olmec influence across the region sees a number of similarly advanced populations spring up. No more less than in Teotihuacan, which at that time was one of the largest cities in the world, with a population of around 200,000 people. That's so many people that if they all stood in one line, it would stretch 400 kilometres or 250 miles. That's New York to Baltimore or London to Paris. It's a big queue. And these people aren't slouches either, right? They've built huge stone pyramids. They laced Teotihuacan with an interconnected web of roads and highways. They establish a variety of bustling marketplaces, suburbs and neighbourhoods, and there's places for them to work, play and study. In short, it is a thriving metropolis. But we can't linger here, Pete, as lovely as it is, because only a few hundred years pass and Teotihuacan starts to collapse. The city is abandoned and the population disperses across the country to join other rival cultures. 
Now, in the 7th century, we meet a new powerhouse group, and they are called the Maya, and they are impressive, Pete. They build on the old Olmec knowledge by introducing an advanced form of writing, mathematics, astronomy, and architecture. And for 300 years, the Mayans are the dominant society, until, inevitably, for equally mysterious reasons, they also start to decline too. Now, this exit paves the way for the Toltec, a culture with a strong and brutal military that controls a vast empire for hundreds of years, until the 14th century, in fact, when their empire crumbles too. And so the Toltecs leave a vacuum of power, which is greedily filled by the Aztecs, another powerful group who take control and absolutely flourish, expanding their empire across the landscape and building themselves a huge capital city called Tenochtitlan. Now, this is the beat heart of the Aztec Empire, and it's here, in the grandeur of the city, that we witness a complex and sophisticated culture built around government and religion. But let's not get too comfortable here, Pete, because 200 years passes quickly, and as the 16th century rolls around, before you can say, no te acomodados demasiado, here come the Europeans, with Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés leading the charge. Cortés and his Spanish army bring superior weapons, military tactics, and alien diseases, all of which they leverage to quickly defeat their enemy. A defeat which saw 200,000 Aztecs die in the Battle of Tenochtitlan alone, and a total which is estimated to be in the region of 20 million people. That is some genocide right there. And so, the Spanish establish a colony, and they introduce a whole bunch of changes to the surviving Aztec lives through the destruction of written work and religious artefacts. But Pete, it's not all bad, because they balance that out with the introduction of Catholicism and a brutal feudal government. Oh, yay! (laughs) Yeah. Unsurprisingly, this all goes some way towards making the Spanish incredibly unpopular. (laughs) (laughs) And by the 18th and 19th centuries, a series of wars and revolutions spring up which lead ultimately to 1821. And that is when the country gains its independence. Now, short side note here, shortly after independence, around 1843, a book is published by German explorer Alexander von Humboldt. Now, within that book, he refers to the people of Mesoamerica prior to the Spanish colonization as Aztecan. This book becomes popular around the world, and soon every man and his wife outside of Mexico starts referring to all ancient Mesoamericans as Aztec. The Maya, the Olmec, the Zapotecs, the Toltecs, the Mixtecs, the Tarascans, all of them become bundled together under the one label Aztec. This is like calling all of the different indigenous peoples of America Apache, rather than by their own specific tribal names like Sioux or Cherokee or Navajo. It's a crass generalisation, and it's both derogatory and insensitive. So today there is an effort to correct von Humboldt's error, and hopefully we'll start to see those ancient cultures being referred to by their own individual names rather than just that one. Anyway, back to Mexico in the 1900s. Despite having gained independence, violence continues across the country, with social, political and economic challenges causing major issues. This builds up to a point where a long and brutal revolution takes place, starting in 1910 and lasts for a decade. As the dust settles, the country's now under the leadership of the Institutional Revolutionary Party, the PRI, and they stay in charge for 70 years, during which time we see modernisation, industrialisation and the introduction of international trade. 
And as we enter the new millennium, Pete, the country heads in a new direction. It shirks the grip of the PRI and it entertains a new leadership, which promotes Mexico on the international stage by joining the United Nations, the G20, the Union of South American Nations and the Organization of American States. In 2018, Mexico's current president is voted in under the apparently controversial policy of putting the poor first. Crazy stuff. (laughs) His name is Andres Manuel López Obrador, and he is a left-leaning politician who blames much of the country's issues on the wealthy. His policies have divided opinion, with the working class seeing him as a visionary man of the people, and conservatives considering him an incompetent demagogue more interested in consolidating political power than addressing economic and social problems. He'll be one of those, I'm sure. It could be both at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) And so that leaves us here, in the second decade of the 21st century, with a Mexico which still faces a range of political, economic and social challenges, but which has a rich culture, diverse population and a growing economy. It appears, Pete, that Mexico has a bright future ahead, and I, for one, wish them all the best. I have every faith in them in the future. And so that concludes our tour of Tenochtitlan, a thriving city of people and culture. Do you have any questions, Senor Cortez? Yes, I was wondering about trade. Oh, I see. Well, I mean, we'd be delighted to trade with the Spanish. Uh, What sort of exchange did you have in mind? Well, do you have any gold? Gold? Well, well, yes, we do have gold, but uh, perhaps we can offer you something of far greater value. For example, we can teach you our numbering system, including the concept of zero, enabling advanced mathematics. Yes, yes, but to confirm, you do have gold. Yeah, but, but we also have developed calendars with which we can mark the passage of time with remarkable accuracy for many years into the future. Surely that's something which would benefit the growth of the Spanish Empire. Mm, yeah, 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 but I really do like gold. Yeah, but our engineers and inventors have mastered great buildings and uh, our farms thrive thanks to our expertise in agriculture, something which we would be glad to share with you. Well, that's all very well, but it doesn't sound very goldy. But don't you want... Gold, please. I mean, but what about... Gold! Fine. Um, we could give you a bit of gold, yes. Or all of it? A, a bit of gold, yeah. But but what can you give us in return? Well, and you're going to like this. In exchange for gold, we've got Catholicism. Oh, well, what's that? It's a religion. But we have a religion. A rich and vibrant set of beliefs based around many gods. Well, that's what we're offering. I just don't think we could make much use of it. Well, I suppose if that's not good enough, we do have guns. Lots and lots of guns. Oh, uh, well, okay. Yeah, we could probably use some guns to replace our weaponry. (laughs) No, I don't think you quite understand. We have guns. Ah, and how much gold would you like exactly? I would say all of it. Righto. That was all very interesting. Sorry, I'm just I'm just so sleepy. I I don't oh. understand why am I so sleepy, Ryan? <laughs> <laughs> nice segue. Do you like it? Yeah, it's good. Okay, well, that's a great question, Pete. We all do it. We do it at night, sometimes during the day. We spend one third of our lives doing it. In fact, some people are probably doing it right now while listening to this. (laughs) (laughs) We do it laying down, sometimes sitting up. It's easy to do. You just close your eyes, you rest your body, and soon you'll drift into unconsciousness. Oh, 
had to challenge this easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> Catching some Zs, getting some shut eye, hitting the hay, nodding off. We are, of course, talking about sleep, Pete. I'm a big fan and it's probably the best <laughs> third of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but what is sleep? It's a great question. Well, at its most simple, it's an essential state of rest for the body and mind. It's the time when the body can repair and restore itself and when the brain can process memories, emotions and anxieties. If we don't get enough sleep or not good enough sleep, we can experience a variety of really bad effects on our physical and mental health. Fatigue, irritability, difficulty concentrating, an increased risk of accidents, obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, depression, difficulty with um, memory, inability to retain information, even an increased risk of premature death. Basically, it's super important stuff. So how does it work? Well, as the sky gets darker, our body's internal clock gets triggered and messages are sent through the nervous system to a small gland in our brains called the pineal gland. Now, this gland releases a chemical called melatonin and that chemical is designed to make us feel sleepy. And when that happens, we have basically entered the first of several stages of sleep. Called N1, or drowsy sleep, this initial sleep stage slows the brain down and encourages muscles to relax. At this point, we usually go and lie down and close our eyes. This triggers the next stage, N2, or light sleep, where brain waves slow down and become more regular. This puts us into a deeper stage of sleep, called N3 or deep sleep. This is the stage where our brain waves are at their slowest and where we find it most difficult to wake up. We then enter the rapid eye movement stage and it's where we experience dreams. Shh, I think they've nodded off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Should we drink more tequila while they're asleep? Now, this is the stage where the series of thoughts, images, sensations combine to make those personal little mini movies, which can be equally bizarre, exciting, erotic or terrifying. And throughout the night, the brain cycles through these stages multiple times. Each cycle helps to restore the mind and body, leaving it feeling rested and refreshed. The brain does so much work during sleep that it's actually more active than when you're awake. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah. Research shows that this process takes about seven to nine hours each night, which is why the recommendation for daily sleep is around eight hours. But sleep isn't something that just humans do, Pete. Animals such as cats and dogs, they also sleep in a way which is similar to humans. But not all animals do. Some species of shark and dolphin have to keep swimming in order to breathe, so they can't just shut their bodies down or they're drowned. <laughs> so instead they have periods of rest as they swim, which is similar to plants, uh, who also don't sleep as we do. They just have regular daily rest cycles. And so, to today's episode, we're going to be looking at sleep in Mexico during the Middle Ages, which is a term that generally describes a European period of history uh, between 476 and 1450 CE. But within Mesoamerican history, those years crossed two major time periods, the Classic and the Post-Classic periods. So really, this is sleep in Mexico during the Classic and the Post-Classic periods. So we're going to be looking at the ways sleep impacted the lives of the classic and post-classic civilizations, people like the Maya, the Toltec, and the Aztec. And we're going to get started with the basics, like what was sleep like then? 
I can imagine you get more sleep in a way because you don't have electric light to keep you up and disturb your rhythm. Social media to browse. Yeah, there's very little doom scrolling <laughs> in the Mayan culture. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like something that could have been from that culture, though. <laughs> the doom scrolls. <laughs> So, what was sleep like for an average Mayan or Aztec? Well, much like today, they went to bed at night, and they slept, they had dreams, they got up in the morning, they had afternoon naps, pretty standard stuff. But there were some differences, and the first of those is exactly where people did most of their sleeping. Unlike today, where we live in houses which often have multiple floors full of rooms for different activities like eating, bathing, storing and working, the people of ancient Mesoamerica designed homes principally for sleeping. And the reasons for that are twofold. One, because they lived together as part of a large extended group of family, which meant a lot of close proximity and therefore not much room to do anything other than just sort of lying down still. <laughs> and two, because the weather was so hot. Much of the household activity we take for granted could all be done outdoors. So bathing, cooking, recreation, all of that took place in the courtyards or the streets outside the home. Now, that's the same whether you lived in the city or out in the countryside, whether you were rich or whether you were poor. Your house was for the night time. So what was the house like? Well, it was a small, one-story, rectangular hut. Sometimes oblong, but mostly rectangular. The walls are made of adobe, which is dried mud bricks, or wattle and daub, which are those thin wooden strips which are woven together, covered in plaster, and then whitewashed. Your roof is flat, thatched with grass, and you enter the hut through the one open doorway, and inside you'll find the one main room. There is no chimney, no windows, and the floor is made of either earth or stone. We're going to see a few pieces of pottery, but other than that, all we're going to find is the one universal piece of furniture. The bed. Excellent. That's what I was looking for. Or rather, the sleeping mat. A pet lattle. Pet lattle, okay. Large enough for a human to lie on it, these mats are made of dried reeds. They're interwoven with different colours and designs, and they're sometimes padded with feathers or rabbit fur. And uh, then they're covered with cosy-looking rugs. Sounds good to me. In the Maya region, in particular, there is some evidence to suggest that the mats might actually have been placed on sort of low wooden frames rather than just directly onto the floor. Uh, and in some cases, hammocks were used too. But in terms of our hut, Pete, we're on a palatal and we're on the floor. Okay. I would like to be off the floor. There's creepy crawlies on the floor. There are, but we're on the floor. Okay. And we're not alone, Pete, because this is pretty much the standard sleeping equipment for all people, from the humblest slave to the emperor himself. In his book, Historia Verdadera, Spanish conquistador Bernal Diaz de Castillo wrote, However great a lord he might be, no one had any bed other than this kind. 
What did vary, though, was the quality of the materials and the number of the mats used. So common people would sleep on just the one mat. Emperors would sleep on a whole pile of them. Yeah, I've got sort of a, a princess and the pea kind of image in my head of a guy in a giant pile of hay, thousands of rugs piled onto yeah, it. 18 feet tall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nose pressed against the ceiling. <laughs> so let's talk about dangerous spirits, because they were believed to cause harm to anyone who was out and about at night. And so the best place for people to be during the night hours was in their own house and laying on their mat. And we'll discuss later, but sleep was a time when it was believed that the soul left the body and travelled to the afterlife. So you needed to be protected from evil. And what better thing to protect you than your bed? Sounds great. Yeah, it's a bit like wrapping the duvet over your head when you're a kid <laughs> to protect you from the monster lurking in the wardrobe or under your bed. Well, sleeping is a very vulnerable period, even just physically, isn't it? Sure it is. You've got to hope that nothing happens to you over those eight hours that you're <laughs> passed out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, the mat, the sleeping mat, the patatl, was considered so highly that they called it the jaguar. And they called it that because it was said to devour anyone or anything which would cause you harm while you were sleeping. Nice. Yeah. And if your mat wasn't up to snuff, you could also take in purification rituals and sleep ceremonies, which would also ensure that you were safe while you were asleep. So anyway, night times come around and we, like everyone else, are starting to get sleepy. Well, not everybody. Some people had jobs that required them to stay awake. Some warriors were sent out on night missions to sort of do reconnaissance on rival towns to find the best places for future attacks while everyone was asleep. Priests would skip sleep to do nighttime priest related things <laughs> priesting <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like penitence or making devotions to their gods uh, they would regularly prick their skin as an act of self-sacrifice uh, or just to keep themselves awake yes that's yeah yeah that's a sacrifice not just that i'm exhausted <laughs> other people were employed to keep the great fires burning on top of the temples and there were the astronomers people who watched the movements of the stars to mark the hours of the night and the changing of the seasons and then Pete, I love this one. This is an adorable story of one naughty little 12-year-old girl who is depicted in early Mayan writings as having been punished for disobedience by having to get up during the night while the stars shone above her head to sweep the house and the street outside. <laughs> <laughs> But those are the exceptions. For most people, nighttime was for sleeping. And so, okay, let's join in, right? And follow the nightly ritual. I'm for it. Okay, so one hour after eating, we drink some warm water with lime or lemon. Now, that's said to help prepare our minds for sleep. Then we need to say prayers. Now, we say prayers not to our gods, but to our sleeping mat. <laughs> <laughs> I might start doing this. <laughs> yeah, and thank it for its protection. We then leave a cup of water for our spirit to drink when it returns to our body in the morning. We lie down, we breathe deeply, we clear our minds, and we imagine a bird rhythmically moving, slowly shape-shifting us into an animal that will carry us into the dream world. When we awake, as we lie there on our mat, we try to recall our dreams because an important part of the culture is to remember and analyse our dreams. And throughout the day, we're going to be asked many times by all of the people that we meet about them. Children especially are encouraged to talk about their dreams because it's seen as a way of leading them towards living a full life. And so, lying there on our mat, sleep dust in the corner of our eyes, we try to recall as much about our dreams as possible. Then we say another prayer to the mat as a thank you and a goodbye. We pick it up off the floor, we shake it off, we roll it up, and we store it against the wall to avoid it getting cold 
and wet from the floor. Quite right too. You've got to look after your Jaguar. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Welcome to House Changers, where we transform your home into your dream house. This week, we're in Huddersfield with the Hendersons. Hello. Now, you two said you'd love to holiday in Mexico. Oh, we do, yeah. And you have a passion for history. That's right. So we took ancient Mayans as the inspiration for your dream home. Ooh, that sounds great. So over the past week, the House Changers team has been busy transforming your Huddersfield hellhole into a Mayan marvel. And we know you're going to love it. Oh, right. Well, we are very excited to see it. Here we go! And here it is! So, what are your first impressions? Well, well it, it's it's different. It sure is. The team have really gone for it, and your old home is now authentically Mayan. But but it's, it's just one room. Yep, that's right. We knocked out the internal walls, filled in the windows, thatched the roof with real imported Mexican grass, and stripped out the pipework and central heating. But, but, but where's my stairs? There is no upstairs. You now live in an ancient Mayan house, so no more exhausting stairs to worry about. It's just a single room. What about my front door? That's gone too. Like a Mayan, you have direct access to the great outdoors. But, but my neighbours will see him. And they'll see that we've removed all of the floorboards and replaced it with an authentic Mayan dirt floor. And, and where's all my furniture gone? It's gone. We got rid of all your belongings so you can live just like the Mayans. Except, of course, for your bed. Oh, thank goodness for that. Yep, over here, rolled up against the wall, is your bed ready for a good night's sleep. Well, that's just a mat. Not just a mat, an authentic Mayan sleeping mat. Right. So what do you think? Well, I suppose it's very roomy. It is roomy. It's a room. It is, isn't it? One room and a mat on the dirt. I knew you'd love it. Now, after the break, we'll be heading to Bolton to meet the Browns, who love all things French. So the House Changers team have transformed their boring Bolton bungalow to a plush Parisian palace. Wait, what? They get a palace? Oh, I knew we shouldn't have said Mexico. This is all your fault, Anne. Okay, so we've talked about sleep. And what's the one thing that happens during sleep? Dreams. Dreams. Let's talk about dreams. As we said earlier, dreams are a series of thoughts, images, and sensations, all of which occur in our minds during sleep. They're a natural part of the sleep process, and they play an important role in the way that the brain processes memories, emotions, and experiences. They can be vivid and detailed. They can be abstract and bizarre. And sometimes we wake with no recollection of them at all. In the classic period, the Maya civilization had a complex religious system that included many gods and goddesses, and many of these were associated with different aspects of sleep and dreams. They had a god called Iztilten, and uh, he was associated with dancing and drinking, and it was said that he would visit young children in their beds at night and bring them darkness and a good night's sleep. Oh, it's Tilton. Another god was Arpuch, an extremely fearsome deity, often depicted as a skeleton with rotting flesh. Side note, it's believed that the depictions of Arpuch's rotting flesh is a visual indicator for the other name that he was known by, which was Saizen, or the Stinking One. So named because rotting flesh obviously smells bad. Also, the word size in Mayan means fart. You teach me all the important words, Ryan. <laughs> Arpuk, or Sizen, was a super malevolent god who brought harm and suffering wherever he went. He was the god of death, disease, decay, bad luck, war, and nightmares. 
According to one Mayan myth, when a person dies, Sizen burns their soul. And when their soul complains, Sizen douses them in cold water until they complain even more. At which point, he uses his anus to burn the soul until it disintegrates into nothing. That is a bleak ending. <laughs> yeah. So you might think that the Maya would try to keep clear of our book, right? You'd think, yes. <laughs> yeah. But because he had the ability to influence their dreams, they actually would try and invoke him and beg protection from his nightmares. That being said, if they weren't able to convince him, they would have given thanks to him for a nightmare anyway, because as we said before, even bad dreams were seen as an important warning sign for things to come. Because throughout our period, and even today, good dreams and bad dreams were all considered to be godly messages of advice, predictions of a future that you should ignore at your peril. And so, with dreams playing such a significant importance, the ancient Mesoamericans sought out experts who could decode these supernatural messages. Expert diviners and soothsayers would offer their services to interpret dreams and give advice on the omens they foretold. But as we've all experienced, dreams can be like grains of sand falling through your fingertips. What once was a vivid and clear memory moments after sleep can disappear from us just seconds later. For a Mayan or a Toltec, this could be like having the numbers to the lottery and losing the ticket. So, as a means to help make dreams more memorable for people, priests and sorcerers would sometimes recommend a mystical herb called Kalea Zacatatichi. All right. Yeah. Known as the dream herb, Kalea is used as an aid to help you sleep. It's supposed to give you a relaxing feeling and make falling asleep more easy. Uh, more impressively, though, it's said that Kalea can help you have crystal clear dreams. Dreams with a narrative structure rather than the abrupt changes or endings that, you know, we might normally otherwise have. Dreams that you can control. And when you wake up, it'll help you remember those dreams for much longer than you normally would. This sounds awesome. Yeah. It doesn't get you high or give you hallucinations. It just helps your dreams be more coherent and memorable. It's not clear how Kalea works, though, uh, but some modern research has shown that it does help reduce inflammation around the brain, which might cause shallow sleep patterns to lengthen and increase the opportunity for memory recall. In ancient Mesoamerica, Kalea would normally be smoked, but today there are a range of ways people consume it, from tea to pills and tincture. That's right, Pete. It's still taken by people today. It sounds great. I'm, I'm in. <laughs> Considered safe, it's legal to purchase in the UK and in America, but it's important to note that Kalea hasn't been heavily researched, so it's difficult to know exactly what side effects it may have. It's not FDA approved. There is some credible evidence that seems to suggest it might be actually nephrotic, which which means that it could cause kidney damage. Oh, and if you're a female, it might mess with your menstrual cycle and you absolutely shouldn't take it if you're pregnant. But with that warning in mind, I thought we should try it. Oh, yeah, sign me up. Yeah. Now, last week, Pete, I sent you a dream journal. Yes, you did. Basically a glorified notepad. And basically, I asked you to write down your dream experiences every morning, right? Yes, correct. So for the past seven days, you and I have both been writing down our dream experiences. What do we remember? What was the quality of it, how vivid it was, whether it was spooky, scary, whatever. Now, as an experiment, I bought us some Kalea in the form of tincture and tea leaves to use over the next seven days and see what effect it gives. And then we can report back on what we find in the, the verdict. verdict. 
So uh, here you go. Here's your ball. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Now, small warning. Kalea is famous for being unbelievably bitter. So don't expect a pleasant run over the next seven days. Okay. Right. The tincture is usually taken by placing a few drops under the tongue to allow it for quick absorption into the bloodstream. But the other advice I've seen is also to take 40 drops. <laughs> it's a lot of drops. It's a lot of drops. Yeah. In general, the advice is that the stronger the dose you take, the more evident the effects. So I leave it up to you okay. to uh, use as you feel comfortable. Perhaps you could make a note of that in your I journal, and we can we can do a test to see. <laughs> see how bold I took five hundred <laughs> drops. Drank the bottle. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to just try a little one drop now. One drop now. Okay. And then uh, just to sort of describe the taste for our listeners. Okay, so it's in a little sort of dropper, dropper bottle. Yeah, that's a it's lot It's kind there. of a brown liquid. I'm not going to squirt it. Yeah, okay, it? good. Okay, how's, how's that oh taste? Oh, my Lord! Oh, yeah, oh, yeah that yeah. is really bitter. Yeah, I had tried that before. But yeah, <laughs> I just wanted to see your reaction. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's quite terrible. Oh, that is bad. So 40 drops of that every night. Yeah. <laughs> For I the next see. seven days. The, oh, that's nasty. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. That means it's got to be good for you. Clearly. <laughs> Clearly. Oh, yeah. Oh, that is foul. Just think of all those dreams you can control. Oh, that's bad. Soothsayer, I seek your counsel. I am greatly disturbed by the horrors that have visited my dreams. I, I fear it portends doom. Well, we'll see about that, for I am the diviner of dreams, servant of Sizer, here to interpret the visions he has brought you in the night. Well, last night I dreamed of many great wooden boats filling the horizon with huge white sails in a blood-red sky, slicing through the water towards our city. Ah, but a boat floats upon the water. This signifies our floating above the vagaries of life. This is a very good omen, my child. Right, but the thing is, these boats, they were full of strange men in exotic garb. There was bloodlust in their eyes and they were chanting, We want your gold. We want your gold. Oh, interesting. Well, to dream of gold is to dream of prosperity and good fortune. The gods have destined great wealth in the future for you, my child. Oh, okay, but these these strangers, they fell upon our city, hacking and, and slashing until the streets ran red with blood. They carried strange sticks which made a noise like sudden thunder, causing our people to fall dead. Oh, worry not, my child. In our dreams, death is simply a symbol of change. Life is all about change. Perhaps you're going to find a new job soon. I fear a terrible threat is approaching our city. No, it'll be fine. Really? Yes, yes, yes. It all sounds absolutely fine. Nothing to worry about at all. If you say so. I do. Next! Okay, let's move on, shall we? I can't. This is foul. <laughs> it's it's really bad, me. right? It's staying with me. It's lingering, Ryan. <laughs> okay, carry on. You okay? Yeah, it right. just, just stays with you, doesn't it? Does. It does. It doesn't go away. Yeah, that was my experience lying on the couch going, make it stop. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, as a famous fictional Danish prince once said, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death, what dreams may come. This was, of course, Shakespeare's Hamlet, who was equating the idea of sleep with death and dreams with the afterlife, contemplating what might happen after you die, peace and rest, or a whole bunch of other problems. But Hamlet's concern for the afterlife could have been easily answered by the ancient Mesoamericans, because 
Well, they had an answer to this. They believed that life was the dream, and only in death did one become truly awake. Aztec poet Tochiwitzin Koyolchioki, he wrote about this very thing in a song. He said, We only came to sleep. We only came to dream. It is not true. It is not true that we came to live on the earth. We are changed into the grass of springtime. Our hearts will grow green again, and they will open their petals. But our body is like a rose tree. It puts forth flowers and then withers. Now, the Mayan word for sleep or sleeping is wyob, but wyob was also a term that was used to describe the nagwal, that is the animal that you transform into while you're asleep. Mayans believed that the wyob were basically your spirit animal and had an important role to play in how you led your life. They were seen as powerful spirits, literally the soul of a person, and they were most powerful in the hours just before dawn. During this time, the wyob would wander around the spirit world and interact with each other, chit-chatting and doing spooky stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so dreaming was your best way of connecting with your and other people's wyob. And because they believed that souls lived on after someone died, this made the afterlife a very real thing, with the dead continuing to have a significant presence in the living world. Deceased ancestors were seen as sources of wisdom and worthy of respect, and through dreams, the wyob were a means for the living to keep in contact. And so, during our time period, we see ancient ceremonies being practiced practice to remember and honour those who had passed. Now, the best known ceremony, which is still held today, is Dia de Muertes, the Aztec Day of the Dead. Now a traditional Mexican holiday held in the beginning of November, it has roots that go back to the earliest ancient Mesoamericans who celebrated the queen of the underworld, Mictacasi Wattle. Mictacasi Wattle? Yeah. The Aztecs believed that instead of going to heaven, all the souls of the dead travelled on an arduous four-year descent down nine levels into the deepest part of Mictlan, where they would find eternal sleep. But they also believed that the aroma of incense and the bright colour and fragrance of marigold flowers could awaken the spirits and guide them back home. And so, celebrations were held each year called the Festival of the Dead, huge events which lasted for several days. During this time, they would honour the deceased and remember their contributions in life. They built altars to honour the deceased. They decorated them with flowers, candles and other symbolic items. They made offerings of all the things that the deceased enjoyed in life. It wasn't a morbid affair, it was a celebration with bright colours, music and dancing. Eventually though, during the colonial period, the Aztec Day of the Dead merged with Catholic traditions and today the holiday is celebrated by millions of people around the world, but it's a, a different beast. But traditional customs are still held in some areas of Mexico. There's one small island called Janitzio, where the descendants of the Purepeca people still maintain the same customs of their ancestors from our time period. So, the rituals take place over two days, beginning on November 1st with the Day of the Innocents, which honours the spirits of the children who have died young. At the start of the day, the fathers watch from outside the graveyard as the mothers and the siblings go into the cemetery and prepare an altar with flowers, wooden toys and sweets, where they then hold a wake. When the sun sets, the night of the dead begins, and this welcomes the adult spirits. The fishermen head out onto the lake in their wooden canoes, lit with candles, and they perform a dance using their nets as butterfly wings. This rouses the souls of those who have passed, and it guides them into the cemetery. Then, at midnight, the day of the dead begins proper. 
Women and children take torches and candles and return to those altars they'd made earlier. Fires are lit, incense is burned, costumes of animal skins and bones are worn, offerings are made of ceramics, flowers, food and drink, and the cemetery bell tolls all night long, calling out to the dead. It's said that as the wind picks up, so the spirits are awoken and blown back to earth. There, the women and the children chant and pray for their relatives, while the men wait outside the cemetery until dawn, when the vigil ends, and the souls return to Miklan to return to eternal sleep. I like the idea of consulting with the ancestors every now and then. Get myself a bunch of marigolds and down the local cemetery, see what, <laughs> see what happens. See how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> you, let me know. I'm not going to join you on that one. So one last thing before we end our episode, Pete, and uh, I want to end with a little Aztec bedtime story. Right? I'm ready. I'm as, as appropriate. Me, you can tuck me in and then tell me a story. Yes, absolutely. All right, here we go. Now, this is a bedtime story called The Sleeping Woman. Long ago, a beautiful princess named Iztazihuatl fell in love with one of her father's warriors called Popocatapetl. The emperor was unhappy that his daughter should be in love with such a man, and so only promised that they could marry on the condition that Popocatapetl returned from a war against a ferocious enemy. Popocatapetl accepted the terms and left to do battle. Expecting that the warrior would not return, the emperor soon told his daughter that Popocatapetl had been killed. Believing the news, Iztazihuatl was overcome with grief and she died. But Popocatapetl did return, and on finding his love dead, he collected her body and he carried it all the way outside the city to a place where he buried her. He knelt down by her graveside and he mourned. Days passed to weeks, weeks into months, and still Popocatapetl remained, kneeling by her side. As time passed, the gods covered them with snow, and slowly they both turned to stone. Popocatapetl became a volcano, raining fire in rage at the loss of his beloved, and Iztazdawatl's snow-covered mountain became known as the Sleeping Woman. The end. Oh, that's sweet. It really is sweet. And you can see both those mountains today if you visit Iztapopo-Zacayapan National Park in Mexico. Um, Iztazahuatl is the third highest peak in Mexico. It has four snow-capped peaks, which when you look at them, they really do seem to form the head, chest, knees and feet of a sleeping female lying on her back. Nice. Do you want to see a picture? I do. You want to pop a kettle on? Oh, I see it. It's the Sawattle. Oh, yeah. She looks, she looks quite comfortable. It really does look like a body lying down there, doesn't it? When you look at it. We'll pop that up on the website. Anyway, Pete, there you go. That is Sleep in Mexico during the Middle Ages. I loved it, Ryan. That was excellent. Thank you very much. There was a nice interlude in the middle where I very nearly fell asleep as you gradually described the stages of sleep. Uh, you nailed the time period, the topic, sleep, death. It had everything. Tequila, Plus, beer. Bit of a roller coaster. You started with delicious treats and then moved into tormenting me with the bitterest thing I've ever tasted. <laughs> so quite a roller coaster of emotions for me there, as you can imagine. <laughs> but all in all, marvellous stuff. Well done, sir. Thanks, Pete. Wake up! <laughs> <laughs> wow, what? What? Have we done the show yet? <laughs> I hope this didn't send anyone to sleep. It was all a dream. It's entirely possible. <laughs> <laughs> 
So Ryan, that was marvellous stuff. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Sleep, Mexico, Middle Ages, or indeed the classic and post-classic periods. Thank you. Brilliant stuff. But now we must look to the future. <gasps> that means desolation. That does mean desolation. I don't know what your dreams have told you that is held in the next week, but let's find out now. <laughs> Mm. Well, it's your episode, isn't it? It is. Oh, well, let's find out. Okay, here we go. Let's push the button. Okay, Peter, your place is... Syria. Syria. Syria, Syria. Syria. Serious business. Okay, and uh, your time period is... Okay, it's uh, 550 to 330 BCE, which might not sound great, but that's the Persian Empire. Oh, that's the very, very much in the neighbourhood, isn't it? So you would think that that's, that's got to be there, right? Surely. All right. And you're going to need a topic then, aren't you? It's going to be basketball or something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> chariots, chariots, chariots. <laughs> okay, here we go. And your topic is... The Extra Mile. Ooh. The Extra Mile. The Extra Mile. I could do something with that, probably, I hope, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good luck, Peter. It is The Extra Mile in Syria during the Persian Empire, 550 to 330 BCE. I look forward to bringing you some stories. Well, with that desolation, that's it. That's the show for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, of course, if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about or dreamed about on the show, <laughs> just say hello even. You can reach out to us through our website, hhepodcast.com, or you can email us at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. Yeah, we're not welcoming dreams, though. We're not going to analyse them, so don't send us your dreams, unless they're sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if and you do want to get in touch with us if you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, again you can find us it's at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to one of those, you're going to get a whole bunch of information as we send it out. News, pictures, more facts. You can see a picture of the lying down lady. Yes, indeed. And we'll be back again soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thanks to you, Ryan. And thanks to you, Peter. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is You've been dreaming of... happen everywhere. Oh, hey Pete. Hey Ryan. Oh, I'm off to bed now. Okay, good night. Sleep tight. Don't let the bed bugs bite. Wait, what? I said good night. No, 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 the other thing. Sleep tight? No. Don't let the bed bugs bite. Yeah, that. Obviously that. Are you telling me we have bed bugs? No, oh, of course not. That's just a thing that people say. Why are people saying that about our bed? Well, not our bed, just beds in general. Oh, so there's what, like a plague of bed bugs going around or something? No, you know, it's just an expression, a thing people say to help you sleep. Well, how's that supposed to help? If anything, I'm more awake now because I'm terrified of bugs. Ryan, you're being an idiot. Look, do we have bed bugs or not? No, of course not. It's it's metaphorical. I don't know what that means. It, it means it represents something. The bugs are like things in your brain. There's bugs in my brain? Not actual bugs. It's it's just like saying, don't lie there, thinking of horrible things like... Bugs? Well, yeah, I guess, but more everyday thoughts and fears. You know, money issues, the big meeting you've got at work. Where am I going in life? You know, the stuff that keeps you up at night. They're like bugs, those thoughts, eating away at you, gnawing away at your soul. Oh, right. No, I don't have any of those. Thanks anyway, though. What, you, you don't have worry? No. So you're telling me you never lie in the dark 
late into the night they're thinking am i a good podcaster or not or what is my purpose what's the point of it all or wondering i've wasted my life and i've achieved nothing i've got one friend and a podcast i've got bills to pay my life's a shambles and nobody loves me and do i even have a future no no never happens to me oh right do you have those thoughts what no obviously not oh good because that sounds awful (laughs) yeah awful all right. Well, night, Pete, and don't let the bed bugs bite. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Good night. Ryan? Ryan, are you awake? Ryan? Oh, stupid bed bugs. Hey, <laughs>